Hi, I'm Murray Walker. Hello, I'm Jensen Button. Hi, this is Mario Andretti. Hi, I'm Rubens Barrichello. Hi, I'm David Coulthard. Hi, this is Mika Hakkinen. Hi, I am Daniel. Maybe not everyone knows this about me. Joseph Ricardo. Hi, I'm Kim Raikkonen. You are listening Beyond the Grid, correct? Can you do it one more time? What is it? Beyond, Beyond the Grid. Hi, Beyond the grid. I'm Kimi Raikkonen, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, I'm Kimi Raikkonen, and you're listening to listening to Beyond the Grid. You're listening to your podcast. Let's put it this way. Do you mind just doing it yeah. once more? Hi, I'm Kimi Raikkonen, and you're listening to podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Hi everyone, Tom Clarkson here and welcome to what is, I can't believe it, the final episode of 2019 of your favourite podcast, Beyond the Grid, presented by the new Bose Noise Cancelling Headphones 700. Well, what a year it's been. 43 podcasts and more legends than I could have hoped to meet in a lifetime, let alone nine months, and more stories than I can possibly do justice to here in our end of season Christmas special. But I've spent the past week compiling some of the most memorable anecdotes from Series 2, which I hope you're going to love. Now let me tell you, this was no easy task. I could have easily picked an anecdote or two from every single guest. But in the end, I've pumped for a list that I think showcases the full breadth of the conversations that I've had. So whether you've been a listener since the beginning, or you're joining us for the first time today, please sit back and enjoy hearing your F1 heroes one final time this year. To kick things off, let's turn first to the 2009 world champion Jensen Button. He and I caught up at the Russian Grand Prix to talk about everything from having children to winning the world title. And it was the story of how he came to race for Braun Grand Prix after Honda had pulled out so abruptly that I found intriguing. It came as a shock to everybody in Formula One, December 2008. How much of a shock was it to you? when they pulled out? A massive shock. I had no idea. No inkling? Nothing. Nothing. And, you know, even if you think that they're having struggles, or you, you'd never think they're just going to pull the plug completely. You know, it, it'd be over time, you know what I mean? But it was, bang, done. We're pulling out. We have to, um, uh, as well as many other manufacturers were, was, were pulling out of motor racing. But it was a real big shock. I'd been away training in Lanzarote that that lovely training camp that I used to do every year for, for one to two weeks in Lanzarote, uh, Club La Santa. Uh, and I just got back, felt fitter than ever um, with Mikey at Gatwick Airport, of all airports, um, at the baggage carousel, uh, waiting for our, our luggage and bikes. And that's when I got a text from Richard saying, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you, you have to call me immediately. And he did. And I said, hey, hey, how's it going, buddy? He's like, got some, got some bad news. You know, the Honda are pulling out. I was like, what? That's it. Game over. He said, yeah, that's it. The team is done. <laughs> Did you have any idea what a beast the team was developing for 2009? So were you all quite hopeful up until that moment that 2009 was going to be a great year anyway? Yeah. I mean, Honda would, had still been, they've been putting in a lot of money into the new car, a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, you'd walk, you walk around the factory and spending time with everyone in the wind tunnel and they're like, this is, this is going to be a great car. You know, we don't know how good because it's a complete regulation change. Um, we don't know what other people are going to build, but we think we've done pretty well with the regulations. You know, initially we thought we'd be two seconds slower with the new regulations, but we're basically as quick as we were at the end of the year now. 
um, with next year's car, with regulations that should be two seconds slower. Whether that means that we had a really bad car in 08 or a great car in 09, we didn't know at that point in time. Um, so no, there was a really good feel about 2009 season. Um, and I think that's why everyone pushed so hard to, to keep the team going. One, because there were a few hundred jobs that were on the line, but two, because we knew the car was, uh, was, was looking good. Were you tempted to get involved in the rescue package yourself? Well, we did. You did? Well, we found a couple of um, potential buyers for the team. So, um, yeah, we went out, Richard and myself, to, to find them, and we did. Um, we gave them to the team, and initially it's like, oh, that's, that's great. And then suddenly silence. It's like, hang on, what's going on? And then we were out of the loop, really. But uh, you weren't tempted to invest yourself? I didn't have the money to do that. No, no, I'm not saying... <laughs> I thought they bought it for a quid or something, or a pound. Or... Yeah, but I... Well, I'd love to have been involved because uh, obviously they made a lot of money out of it in the future. But um, no, it went quiet. You know, we had buyers. We had people that, that were interested to put in the money to, to fund the team. But um, everything went quiet. And that's when Nick Fryer and Ross were trying to do the takeover themselves. We didn't realize that that was an option. You know, we thought we had to try and find someone to, to fund the team and to run the team. Go on then. So how good was it? You, you, as you say, there was a good vibe in the factory. The numbers were good in the wind tunnel. I think you did a first test on Silverstone National Circuit or something. Yeah. Did you know immediately that you had a, no. a weapon? No. The only thing I knew is that we didn't have any issues, which is great. You know, when you drive a car out for the first time, you normally have some issues, reliability issues, spent a lot of time in the garage. We had nothing, so it all went smoothly. Even though the power unit wasn't the power unit that was meant for that car and it didn't fit quite correctly, it had a spacer. So no, it was a good day. But everyone was looking at me like, is it any good? It's like, I don't know. I can't. It's Silverstone Stowe circuit. It wasn't even the national circuit. It was the fun, the the, the school circuit. Really slow. Yeah. yeah. So then you take it to Barcelona then. And there's all sorts of wonderful stories that I've been told about, you know, you finding out that, you know, all right, lads, let's take well, fuel levels and stuff. Just talk us through that Barcelona. Well, we arrived. That was the sort of first yeah. time, right? Well, we arrived and it was, it was just a really nice atmosphere because everyone really welcomed us um, because we'd fought so hard to, get, to keep the team on the grid and everyone loved the, the colour scheme and you know, all the big teams were like, oh, it's so great that you, you guys made it happen. Lovely to have you here at the test. And we'd missed all the previous tests. We turned up for the last test in Barcelona and... Uh, Jumped in the car, went out, so excited to be in a F1 car, you know, to have a job. Um, did a couple of laps, a couple of lap times, came in. I came in and said, Shove, I'm not very happy with the balance. You know, I feel that we, we need to help the car at the, you know, with the rear end in high speed and front end low speed. And he looked at me and was just, had a smile on his face. I was like, Why are you, what are you smiling at? He said, We're fastest. So, what do you mean we're fastest? I said, Probably people have just done install laps. They haven't done any lap times yet. And he said, no, 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 everyone has. And you're, you're something like four or five tenths quicker than everyone. I was like, wow, okay. And then we did some set at work, went back out, and I think we ended up just under a second quicker than, than anyone. What an incredible story. It's hard to believe there'll ever be another fairy tale like Braun. And to hear about what happened in such detail from the man himself was fantastic. From JB to DC, who I went to see in Monaco at the start of the year. David Coulthard had just retired when Button had his moment in the sun, but there was a time 10 years before that 
when DC was hot property. Very hot indeed, in fact. Hadn't there been a tug of war over your services at the end of 94 as well? Well, Williams, uh, at the end of 94, told me that they, they wanted to sign a two-year contract. So we agreed terms for 95, 96, went to the factory to sign that contract. And Ron Dennis had already shown interest towards the end of the year in having me come on board for, for uh, 95 and, and beyond. And uh, we went to sign, and I say we, my management at the time, IMG, we went to Didcot to sign the contract. And as I went into the the office, Frank said he changed his mind and he didn't want to do a two-year contract. He wanted to do a one-year contract. But apparently Damon was upsetting him over his negotiation. So I remember Peter Goodman, who was the lawyer for Williams, having got the two-year contract out, looking bemused and confused. And I remember going into Frank's secretary's office next door with my manager and going, well, we now have a one-year contract on the table rather than two years. And so my manager, Tim Wright, said, well, let's phone Ron. He phoned Ron and Ron said, okay, sign a contract, sign the one-year contract with Williams, come to McLaren and we'll do a contract for 96, 97. So I, I signed for Williams, having called McLaren from his building, drove down to Woking and then signed for McLaren and then drove up to Scotland for Christmas and told my mum and dad, there's good news and bad news. The good news is I'm contracted for three years in Formula One. The bad news is it's with two different teams, which was a bit confusing for them. David, what a fantastic So Really, the same day you bounce from one team to the other, 95 with Williams, yeah. 6, 7 with McLaren. What yeah. a great story. And man. as I walked into McLaren, Martin Brundle was coming out. It was on the weekend and we didn't expect to bump into to Martin and it was a bit embarrassing because he was a current driver um, and then obviously I guess the penny was was dropping that maybe you know I, I would be joining the team for, for 96. During his stint at McLaren DC was teammates with Kimi Raikkonen for three years. He remembers Kimi as monosyllabic and someone who slept a lot and perhaps Kimi revealed why he slept so much when we caught up at the start of the year at testing. He had me in stitches when he recounted a two-week bender back in 2013. Kimmy, I've got to ask you about two-week period mm. between the Bahrain Grand Prix and the Spanish Grand Prix in 2013. I think Sammy was there. Probably Sammy started the whole thing. <laughs> so, so that's Sammy in the background. Who's how? How do we describe Sammy as a um, friend? Friend, but I mean, Sammy yeah. has been with you since you were 16. You were his mechanic. Yeah. When he was karting, you obviously yeah. decided you were going to be a better driver, and he was a better, better mechanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was doing some. But um, but Kimi, there was a there was a pretty intense two week period. You finished second in the Bahrain mm. Grand Prix in 2013. You then finished second in the Spanish Grand Prix two weeks later, maybe three weeks later. But um, quite a lot of partying went on. Yeah, but that's normal. You know. Is to that me, normal? Yeah, it's very normal. And I. I it, maybe it's not in a book, everything, but for sure, on the the whole summer was more or less. Uh, it was more or less, uh, you know, uh, racing and partying, and but it's you know, I, it's it's nothing. It's nothing new. Uh, so I'm. You know, so for me, it's normal. Outside, it might look a bit uh, weird, but for me, in the past, it's very normal story. So. But Kimmy, how how does you know, when you go and do a 16-day binge, mm. which is what you did between... 
I would still have a hangover now. Yeah, but trust me, when, once you do it, it doesn't feel that long, actually. So. <laughs> but can, how, how yeah. so according to what I read, yeah. you stopped boozing, I think, on the Wednesday before Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah, Obviously, right, yeah. Yeah. Thursday morning, maybe. No, 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 it was Tuesday, Wednesday. Slow down. Only how, how do you food do to get back in the shape. But how can we do, <laughs> how does the body cope with those extremes? You don't, so, so, what I just said that when you when you do a lot of practicing, it's uh, it's much easier. And trust me, if I would do it now, it wouldn't be the same anymore. So. <laughs> because but it, I don't know, I, you know, you get used to things and uh, like any anything, unfortunately. So um, no, no issue. A little bit. I always choked in the past, and, and uh, as long as you have more drinking days than hangover days, you're all fine. So. <laughs> For sure, on that point, uh, the, the numbers were right. So, but you, you don't think has it in any way had a negative impact on your career? Absolutely not. Do you actually think it's made <laughs> <Yeah>. you? <laughs> do you think it's made you a better driver somehow? I because always think, and it, it, obviously it's, it's been a choke often. But actually, I think it's more true than choke that I often been driving better. Being doing all whatever I want between the races, than if I'm just not having fun and <laughs> and drinks and stuff. So I honestly think there's all, all like 2013. It started with the win, and there's definitely not just sitting at home <laughs> before. So you know, it, there's too many proven theories on this story that it it might work better when you have a bit more fun well, and I have to say you want to maybe wanna you're more I always thought that you're more relaxed and you need to put more effort and concentration in it because you're a bit like uh, unsure so uh, and then the end result comes better because you put uh, you know it might be Kimmy turned 40 this year and he's set to surpass Rubens Barrichello's all-time starts record in 2020 Rubens is very proud of that record but that isn't what we're going to hear about now. Instead, let's listen to Rubens tell the story of when he had dinner with his hero, Ayrton Senna, at Adelaide in 1993. It's not what you might expect. He, he would call me. So, and then we have that famous uh, dinner before the Adelaide Grand Prix where I was on one car, Christian was on another car and Senna was on a car. And I, I went to... Because they, they told me so many stories about him and Berger that I said, I got to do something with this car. And I went to hit him from behind on the rental car. And hey, he, so you hit Ed I hit Senna with my... This is in 1993. 1993. Your, your I, first season My of first season. So we are going to the same place to have dinner. And I hit him. And uh, he did nothing. So Christian tried uh, the same. He went and just gave him a nudge. Nothing. So... The, f the only thing he said when we got there was that we should park the cars before him. I didn't understand, but I, Christian parked, I parked, and he parked. The cars were like 15 degrees. Okay. So we went, have dinner. Uh, he says, okay, so time to go to bed, blah, blah, blah. So he leaves like a five minutes before he paid the bill, by the way. And whenever we got out of the, the, the restaurant, he's already reversing into our car, but it was such a smash. It was boom. My car went into Christian's car. He put first and he he went off. 
it was just a so they said don't don't play with Ayrton he's dangerous and uh, I tell you I remember still the noise of that uh, aluminium and whatever it was on the cars because I had to go in from the side of, of the, the passenger side and get into the wheel and when I reversed I could hear the noise going <laughs> it was just a Something else. Did you raise the subject with him the next day? <laughs> he never talked about it. You never he, talked he, about this he, ever. He didn't want to talk it about didn't it. Happen. He pretended it never happened. So it was just a, a funny, a funny, a funny day that uh, people said, "Okay, uh, it's uh, don't play with him because he's a bit of a, of a <laughs> he's a play a play guy." So it, it was funny. <laughs> I absolutely love that story. And the smile on Rubens' face as he told it to me at Interlagos last month sticks in the memory. Have you ever wanted to own a part of Formula One history? Well, if you're anything like me, you'll be excited about this. Because for the first time ever, Formula One has a global online store packed with items from licensed Formula One teams, drivers, suppliers and partners. F1 Authentics is this season's newest online retailer that offers unique, timeless and authentic memorabilia bringing Formula One from the racetrack straight to your door. From Fernando Alonso's race-worn overalls in 2007 to a Mercedes-AMG Petronas Motorsport team front wheel rim turned drinks table, there's something for every Formula One fan out there. Yes, that's you, F1 fans. With F1 Authentics, you can guarantee origin certainty. All products are sourced from official Formula One teams, drivers, suppliers or partners, so you'll never be disappointed with fake items that you might see elsewhere online. Both buy now and auction products are available, so you can either bid for your desired purchase or buy them straight away if you simply can't wait. One of the items that I've seen that's hard to resist is a Kimi Raikkonen test-used helmet from 2004, which has been signed by the Iceman himself. Imagine having that as part of your Formula One collection. So whether you want a stunning new addition to your home or a gift for that avid F1 fan in your life, make sure you don't miss out on products from the official store of Formula One memorabilia. Visit www.f1authentics.com and become the owner of a piece of Formula One racing history. Next up, let's turn to the man who was Senna's teammate at Adelaide in 1993, Mika Hakkinen. I visited Mika at his home in Monaco and we talked for ages about his career and its highs and its lows. And it was the lowest of lows that he spoke about most powerfully, his accident at Adelaide in 1995 and what came afterwards. Well, it, it, of, of course, it is a long time ago already, but I, I, do, I do remember that day and uh, performances, what we did. I do remember the accident uh, itself, but uh, the memory of what I have is that definitely when I was sitting in a car and not not able to move, and I I realized I, I realized that shit I cannot move my legs and I cannot I cannot get out of the car and I thought that's it. I've, I felt that I'm in a, that's it. I'm in the shit. Uh, then I just see next thing I see the guy come in front of me and and uh, and and uh, I. I I said to myself, just now, just, just relax, just don't do nothing, because it's nothing what I can do. So then they just put the, I don't know what to call it. Uh, Is it the tracheotomy? Was it? Like, yeah. Um, so and they, they put me. So just, you were conscious. Is that what you're saying? I was, I was a little wild. I was a little wild until, of course, when they put the hole in your. But initially, you were, so, so you remember that it was a left rear. Yeah, infl- inf- puncture, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Mm. So, 
So, of course, then there is a thing, you know, when you're waking up from the hospital, remember the situation and, and uh, what happened in the hospital, which was really, really horrible things. Uh, it's like in a horror movie, I, I tell you. It, everything just is gray and dark. So that's what was that all about at all time. Even even you, I had a good people around me, you know, it still, it is such a horrible, gray, dark time in my life. I think when when you do survive from that, you, you, you come out of the hospital, you can start walking on the street, you do thank the people who were supporting you, are taking care of you that horrible time. But even then, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible experience. How long did it take you to get over it? I don't think... Do you ever get over something like no, that? No, I don't think... I, you don't ever get over it. Uh, in, in racing life, you know, you have to... And I, I wanted to go back to racing after time. So, so you, you ignore it. You, don't, you stop thinking about it. You just have to go for your, your, your racing performance. But you, you, never, you, you never get over it. You know, you can talk to, any, to anybody in this world and uh, try to get over it and... But you cannot, you cannot escape what that, what you gone through. You have to live with it. You have to to work harder to be healthy and better person to cope this kind of shit. What you gone through, you know. Otherwise, you just you go deeper. You know, you 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 start feeling pity for yourself, and and I don't think that's gonna take you far in your life. So it is a big challenge to to go through that. But like I said, there was a great great people to to help you and and uh, yeah. Did you ever question whether you wanted to continue as a racing driver? Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely. It, it in the first place, it was not even didn't come to my mind because it was not physically even not possible to do anything in life. You know, are you able to live normal life? You know, you never knew that. Then when you start getting a bit stronger, uh, it was a moment when uh, came the discussion that way, hopefully soon I can fly back to Europe from Australia and to go to hospital in Europe. But first, before I can even fly, they had to put me in this pressurizing tank. I don't know what to call it in English. The kind of same pressure what you have in airplanes or in a submarines, you know. I have to go to Navy. They put me in this tank. Just to see how the pressure would affect you exactly you know so so how how long were you in adelaide after the accident if i would say nearly two months something like that right okay so so that includes christmas then i suppose were you there christmas i think after christmas i think uh, before christmas i think i got it something like that you must did you come back with an australian accent you were there for so (laughs) oh my god yeah but it was a but hey really i mean i had a really fantastic uh to to healthcare in in there what what they gave me but then i came back to england i was there in the hospital in sid watkins hospital in in london also uh really difficult time but but thinking about Racing, driving, driving, racing. I mean, lost, lost. I was already 68 kilos when I was racing, so I lost a lot of weight. So I was such a skeleton, so skinny. And doctors, you know, when when I was not able to walk, and you know, they they even didn't allow me to go do any exercise. So I thought, oh, if I 
you know, of course, if you want to go back to sport, racing, you know, you cannot do any exercise. How are you going to manage to do that? So it was very difficult uh, coming back to Monaco then finally from England and to be at home in Monaco. I was, I was sitting in the terrace and I was thinking the time will come when I will get the phone call that way if I want to continue. It's a horrible feeling. I mean, great feeling because the team, the management, nobody didn't pressurize me. Mika, give you answer today. No, they gave me time to last minute to make my decision. You know, so it was it was a horrible time. So it was a gradual process, the return. It wasn't, you didn't like wake up one morning and go. No. I was getting stronger in, I would say, end of the 97, when I was started getting physically back to really shape. You're talking until the end of 97? Yeah. Yes. Two years. Yeah, so it took a long time. How ner- how nervous were you before testing for the first time after the accident? It was at Paul Ricard, wasn't it? It was at Paul Ricard, but I, I knew the track is easy. I knew, knew the track is easy to drive. And so I was, when I went there, I, I know I'm going to go flat out. I didn't have no fear. I, I didn't have no doubt if, I didn't think about if I lost my, driving performance or or talent or something. I didn't no, I, I knew I was gonna go flat out. It was more about uh, fear that what what the mechanics gonna say because I, I did look like a you know Adam's family, you know, a little bit like a monster, you know, you know the <laughs> you know, because they shaved the hair from the <laughs> I mean, Adam's family, it's a movie, isn't it? Something like that, you know. So they had, you know, to shave the hair from the other side. And, uh, of course, the other side of the face because it was paralyzed. So it didn't work properly. So I, I didn't look too normal. So going to the test, I was wondering what the mechanics going to see. They have seen me for all my, you know, gradually my career, 93, 94. And then, so I wonder what they're going to say when they're going to see me. Because it was a serious moment. Imagine, you know, the, you know Christmas is getting, you know, to, no, this was in, it was in January, I think, yeah. So, you know, the mechanics are thinking, what, what, what's going to happen? You know, I was worried about when they're going to see me, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to get shocked. I mean, of course, they had a, they had a great sense of humor. You know, of course they have. They're good lads. They're good guys. And, but I, when I, when I did arrive to Paddock and I walk in the car, I was like, shit, you know, I should be, you know. Normally I come there with full confidence, full power, full energy, smile on my face. Okay, guys, let's, let's work hard. Let's going to do well and let's find solutions for the problems. But now this was the, this was the case when I have to come to Karas and, and I, I, do, I, I don't look so good. I don't look so well. So the mechanics, they, they cannot just do, start screaming, yeah, great, you are back, fantastic. No, 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 no. They saw that way this guy has gone through to hell. Even now, hearing it for the second time, that story has the hairs on my neck standing up. Just incredibly powerful memories. Mika and I also spent quite a long time talking about Michael Schumacher. And it's on the topic of the seven-time world champion that former racer Derek Warwick had me laughing out loud when we spoke about the time he and Michael tripped over each other in a sports car race at the Nürburgring. Well, what happened, you see, is um, it was the first race back with, with Jaguar um, at Nürburgring. Um, a lot of pressure. We were in the lecture hour 14. Um, teammate David Brabham. 
I went out to qualify the car, put it on pole. Um, Schumacher went out with a Mercedes, beat me. I went back out, beat him again. He went back out, beat me. So I'm now back out for my last run on, on qualifying tyres. I see him coming, and I'm not sure whether he's on a quick lap or not. Um, but I put myself in a, a I took myself out of his way, but only half out of his way. Um, he was on his second lap, so he wasn't on a quicker lap. Um, he had already done his, his fast time. And as we came out of the, the last corner to the back straight, um, he just drove from one side of the circuit to me and hit the front tire, took the front suspension off and all the front bodywork. So, so completely I, deliberate. Completely deliberate. So I hobbled back to the pits on, on three wheels. Um, and as I get in the pits, I am furious. A lot of the emotion from Paul coming out, uh, first race back, qualifying, he took me off. I'm overreacting. I get out of the car, my mechanics are running to me because I'm nowhere near the garage, um, but I'm, I'm at the Mercedes garage and I know it's a Mercedes. I don't know it's Michael. Um, so I jumping out of the car, um, while it's still doing 20, 30 mile an hour, my mechanics are stopping the car and um, I'm pull my helm off, throw it in the middle of the, uh, of the pit lane, run into the um, uh, Mercedes garage and Jean-Louis Schlesher was just taking his helmet off. So as he's taking his helmet off, I'm winding one up to give him one and, and Jean-Louis says, no, no, Dad, no, 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 Schumacher. And I look over the, the corner of the garage and Schumacher's running out the back of the garage. So I set off after him. I've now got Mercedes mechanics, I've got Jaguar mechanics, I've got, I've got drivers, I've got all sorts of people, Jochen Mass, I've got everybody chasing. We go in one, one trailer, come out the other trailer, into the back of another trailer, go to the front where there's a little um, office or massage table it was actually. Um, he runs through it and he ch tries to slam the door on me. I put my foot in it. I've now got him over the massage table, right? And I've got in the room, I think Ross, I'm not sure who was in the room really, but I do remember Jean-Louis Slesher from the back of the room saying, hit him, hit him. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, you ask him. Um, and Mass pulled us off, I think. I think Jochen Mass pulled us off because he, he was a tough little bugger as well. So I didn't hit him. Um, it went to the stewards, obviously, um, not from my action, but from Michael's action on the track. Um, and um, they said they would do nothing about it. They didn't want to do nothing about it. We're at Nürburgring, we're with Mercedes, we're with a German driver, um, as long as he come and apologize to me. Um, and he came down to my garage. I, I'd calm down. This, this was, is the same is, day? Or? No, this is Sunday, this is race day. And he never looked me in the eyes and said sorry. He just muttered something at the floor and walked away. And that, and that really was it. Every time I see Derek these days, I think of this story, particularly when he's acting as an FIA steward at races. Do not mess with the man drivers. He's as hard as nails. Now, Derek raced for Brabham in 1986, and it was the technical brains behind the team that we're going to hear from now. Gordon Murray was, and still is, a design genius. And he was responsible for the Brabham BT46B, which was also known as the Brabham fan car. It was a beast, and it raised a few eyebrows when it hit the track for the first time in 1978. OK, I think, I think you need to start with the fan car. You need to start why we had to do it, because that was more of a necessity than a sort of a, a brainstorm in, in isolation, if you like. Because Lotus in 78, in 77 actually, had discovered ground effect with what they called wing cars, where the whole side of the motor car, each side of the monocoque, was a, was a wing profile. 
but upside down, and that interacted with the ground to give us ground effect. And for that to be effective, the, the bit where the air starts expanding towards the rear of the car, which we call the diffuser, had to be as wide and as big as possible. And with a little V8 or a V12, that was quite easy. Our flat 12 Alpha was very big and very wide, and it stuck into that area. So I could see us in 78 being annihilated by not just Lotus, but all the other wing cars. So I had to come up with a way of matching their downforce or bettering it some, some other way. And I read the regs and found a loophole, and that was the fan car. So the way it worked was quite crude, really. It was just a vacuum cleaner. So it had peripheral skirts and an 18-inch fan on the back, and it literally sucked itself onto the ground. So standing still, you could plug it on the ceiling with the engine running, and it would stay there. How many revs would you need to do that? You needed 11,000 engine revs, which was 7,900 fan revs. And it would literally stick on the ceiling. So your interpretation of the rules, how was that legal? Uh, That was pretty simple, actually. It was Article 3.7 in the FIA Yellow Book. And it said quite simply, if something's primary purpose was to have an aerodynamic effect on the car, it had to remain stationary relative to the sprung mass, which is, in other words, the chassis without the wheels. So you couldn't have anything moving. And it was written to stop people having movable aerofoils from the 60s when they were falling apart and falling off the car. People had movable foils. Um, That's why it was written. So I just went to a lawyer and I said, what does primary purpose mean? And he said, how many purposes do you have? And I said, two. And he said, well, primary is then more than 50%. So I made sure the fan sucked more than 50% through a horizontally mounted radiator for cooling and less than 50% sucked the car into the ground. Never pretended uh, the fan didn't suck the car down. It was just primary, it's primary function. And they had to let us race. What did the drivers, Watson and Lauda, say about it? Well, they, I mean, they, did they have to completely they, start they, again? They had to rethink completely the way they drove the car. And even Nicky took quite a while to get used to it, if you like, because you could have a corner entry speed that was on a third or fourth gear corner, 30 miles an hour faster than the conventional car. But you had to keep the engine revs up because the fan... Uh, suction was slave to the engine revs. So normally, I mean, typically going into a corner, you change down a gear and you come in at around maximum torque, two-thirds of the rev range maybe, hit the apex and you feed the power back on and you get your maximum push out of the corner. So you selected your gear ratios at every different circuit for that scenario. With the fan car, we used to gear the car much lower so you go into the corner at maximum revs already, but then you don't accelerate. You just hold those revs through the corner to get the maximum suction. And then once you're out of the corner, you change up a gear. And it just, it, but going in much faster than you thought you could ever go around the corner took a lot of getting used to. If you're one of those people that hits the skip button when we get to this stage of the show and we know you're out there, Keep your trigger finger at bay because we've got a special announcement that you're not going to want to miss. 
As a special treat for our loyal listeners this Christmas, we're giving you the chance to win a pair of Bose noise-cancelling headphones 700. That's right, we've got two pairs up for grabs, one in stylish black and one in futuristic silver, and you could be one of the lucky winners that gets the chance to enjoy Bose's world-renowned and adaptable noise-cancelling technology firsthand across their incredible 20 hours of battery life. So you can keep your heads up, your hands free and your ears amazed with the new Bose Noise Cancelling Headphones 700. All you need to do is go to f1.com slash Bose competition and answer this question. In the episode of Beyond the Grid with Alex Albon back in September, the Red Bull rookie revealed his childhood racing hero. But who was it? Was it A, Ayrton Senna, B, Michael Schumacher or C, Mika Hakkinen? The competition is open from midnight on Wednesday, the 18th of December, 2019, and closes at midnight on the 8th of January, 2020. If you're listening to this episode after the close date, I'm really sorry, but you're too late and any entry you make will not be counted. Entry to this competition is free and full terms and conditions can be found at f1.com slash competition. So for your chance to win a pair of these smart headphones, just answer this question. In the episode of Beyond the Grid with Alex Albon back in September, the Red Bull rookie revealed his childhood racing hero. But who was it? Was it Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher or Mika Hakkinen? Wishing you very good luck. Those headphones are something else. The fan car only won one race, the Swedish Grand Prix in the hands of Nicky Lauda. How come, I hear you say? Well, because Brabham boss Bernie Eccleston withdrew the car after the race. Why? Well, why indeed? But the story highlighted what an extraordinary man and what an extraordinary career Bernie had. Not that he sees his achievements as the godfather of Formula One as anything special. So final question. What's your legacy? Don't have one. Really? You think you, you don't have a legacy? I will disappear and be forgotten within a few months, like most people. Nobody remembers something. The world moves on. New people, new things happen. And, I mean, the world is moving so quick now to what it used to, maybe 20 years ago even, that it's easy for people to sort of march on for new things, new ideas. I think he really means it too. And I guess it's that humble approach that kept him working so hard and for so long into his 80s, even when he had multiple millions in the bank. Now, a man who never drove for Bernie, but was a longtime rival, is Mario Andretti, the living legend that is Mario Andretti. He and I sat down at Indianapolis in May and he had me hanging off his every word for more than an hour. He had endless stories, both of the good and the bad, and it's his memories of Monza 1978 that we're going to touch on now. He won the world title for Lotus at that race, but his teammate and friend, Ronnie Peterson, was tragically killed as well. Uh, it's hard to explain those things, you know. Um, it was such a waste, a waste because he should not have died. He should not have died of those injuries. I did go over there when, when the accident happened. I ran over there. Colin said, don't go, don't go. But, and I think, you know, he would have been, his legs were really in bad condition. But I kept saying, I said, okay, he's going to be limping for a while, but he's going to live. Was he conscious at that point? Uh, no, I think he was uh, somewhat delirious, you know. He was in shock, for sure. Um, because, you know, I tried to talk to him and so forth. He was in shock. I mean, it's understandable. 
But he was not that his head it was compromised or anything. I don't think they had any of those injuries. There was some fire. There was, you know, he had some burns. But uh, uh, basically, by any standard, you know, he should have never died, not from an embolism. Because when you have that type of injuries, immediately, I mean, you just dissolve. You get blood thinners and so on and so forth. He never got any of that. And, um, and that's, I will fault that forever. And that's when we hear again, you know, we're pushing, you know, for our own doctors. We want to have to, we have to have our own doctors to direct the locals to do what we need to do under these circumstances. And, um, and we achieved that. How difficult was it to get back in the car having seen Ronnie? Well, you know, it's, that was, you know, I hate to say it, you know, because uh, it sounds so callous, you know, but... That was never the issue for me. That was my job. And um, it was never, why do I do this or should I? Because I had seen too much of it before. But you never get used to it, believe me. It's not that you get used to it. But things are never the same. You know, you lose a friend, you lose a... And it was not the first friend that I had lost. And um, I couldn't celebrate for sure. I said this many times, this had to be, should have been the happiest day of my career, for sure. Uh, and I couldn't celebrate. And I don't think we ever really did to the, in earnest. The celebration is the rest of your lifetime, you know, you, you know it's there with you. But uh, Deanne and I, uh, we just, uh, how, you know, because we, we were close to the family, uh, with Barbara and the kids, you know, we used to spend time, our kids, you know, so there was, it was more than just, uh, we were teammates. Uh, used to come, when he came to America, like a race at the Glen, we come to the lake ourselves, we go crazy doing stuff, you know, as usual. And, um, and we used to recreate, you know, in so many ways and uh, be competitive, raise hell and have fun. Um, you know, so it was, you know, we lost a true friend there, you know, and um, and again, you know, it was just another, another one of those sad situations. Mario's ability to move on from such tragic circumstances was a reminder that racing drivers were and remain a bit different to the rest of us. And this was a topic that James Allison, the tech boss of Mercedes, talked about so eloquently in his podcast, specifically when talking about the time he first met Lewis Hamilton. My introduction to Lewis was unusual, to say the least. And, uh, but it was revealing about him in a way that has had an important bearing on our, his and my relationship since. So my, my first encounter with him as an employee of Mercedes was in the first winter test of 2017. And we been introduced in the morning, shaken hands, and uh, made the sort of looking forward to working with you type noises. And then he'd gone off to do his thing. I'd gone off to do mine. And we didn't we didn't bump into each other until mid-morning of that day where he had clambered out the car because we were doing something to it. And I was stood in the garage looking at some telemetry and he walked over me, to me, I think, just to be friendly. The run before, he'd been going around the track and he'd had quite a big moment in turn four where the back had come loose and he'd 
kept his foot down and caught it and carried on. And he came up to me and said, hey, did you see, did you see that moment in turn four? And I was thinking, well, I sort of know the form here. You know, drivers, are, drivers like to be told how cool and brave they are. And they are quite cool and brave in many ways. You know, they do do things that the rest of us would probably want a, a good old sit down afterwards. And they, they put it straight away to the back of the head and they push on. So I, I sort of know the deal that you, you, you need to say, yeah, that was massive. Um, wow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but equally I didn't want, I didn't want my first interaction with Lewis to be a sort of fawning one. And so I rather unwisely said, yeah, I did see it. But the thing that, the thing that always amazes me about you fuckers is that you come back for more of it the next lap. And in my mind, that was a sort of way of acknowledging in an indirect way that they are unusual people, that they do a, da a dangerous thing that they immediately put it out of their head and they come back around and do it more. But I, I wanted to say it in a way that didn't say like, oh, you're so cool. But it was like, there's something a bit wrong with you guys. That was what was going on in my head. But Lewis's face just... <laughs> was he on the same page? Or not? No, not at all. He just like, his face just fell. He looked sort of very surprised at me, turned on his heel and sort of walked off in the opposite direction. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> He's not quite getting me. Um, and a little bit later in the day, well, towards that evening, Toto came up to me and said, ah, yeah, uh, James, Lewis said you were pretty rude to him earlier. And I knew what he was talking about, um, but I also knew I hadn't been rude. I might have been ill-judged, but I wasn't rude. I make ill judgments. And, and I said, okay, I know what that was. I wasn't trying to be rude. I'll put it right. Don't worry. I'll go and have a chat with him. We didn't have an opportunity to talk to each other for the for the next day or so. And the first time we did come across each other was back in the factory. And he and I sort of bumped into each other and I and we sort of said, should we go downstairs for a coffee down in the in the canteen? Bit of an atmosphere or not? Um, it was clear that both of us wanted to just clear the deal air. with this because yeah. Toto, Toto absolutely would have said Lewis there's no harm in him don't he's just got a potty mouth you, do, you don't need to worry about that um and so it was it was it was just necessary to to put it straight not that there was going to be a row and it was an opportunity to sit in a relaxed way so we go sit downstairs and I I sort of explained where I was coming from um and and said but don't worry you know I won't do it again. And he said, no, oh, no, no, don't, don't fret, you know, carry on being you. I just, it was just a weird thing to have as the first thing that someone ever said to you. And I thought, yeah, it probably was. But, uh, but what, what then surprised me, and this is, this is really the part of the story that is, is much, you know, is properly revealing of Lewis, is that he, he said to me, look, I haven't had a chance to say until now, but I just want to say how sorry I was about your wife who had sadly died um, six or eight months earlier. And, and he said, I, you know, I'm truly, truly sorry. That's a terrible thing. And that completely caught me by surprise in, in a very welcome way because a, a death of anyone you love is, is a massive thing. And it, it runs around your head. It still runs my, around my head today. I, there will not be 10 minutes of my life where I haven't thought of Becca since then. And it runs around your, your head continually. And it's a lonely sort of world where you're thinking about this pain and very few other people even remember that it happened. 
still less have the courage to acknowledge it and say it because there's a lot of difficulty and embarrassment around, am I going to upset the person? Is it, is it wrong? Is it right? Um, but it's, it's lovely when someone does have the courage to do that because it's an acknowledgement of a loss that matters to you more than anything in the world. And it's a less lonely world when someone does acknowledge that. So, and, I, and it's certainly not what you expect from a driver. So it caught me by surprise and I said, no, thank you. And he, he sort of said, I don't know if it's something you want to talk about or not, but I'm, I just needed to say it. And I told him what I just told you about the fact that it's lovely when people do. And, and he, he took the conversation on a little bit and said, I hope that you find some way of learning to live with it. And I hope that in, in good time, you'll, you'll eventually find happiness again in the future which is a lovely thing to say. And absolutely, again, not, not where I was expecting to be on a Monday morning in a canteen in a Formula One team talking to a Formula One driver who are not generally the most sensitive of souls. I was deeply grateful to it, but I was also aware that, that probably ought to find a way to, to bring it to a, a close in a grateful sort of way. And I said, well, I, I would dearly hope so too, but I you know, that, that happy future that you set out, um, that would require me to actually start talking to a girl. And I'm pretty rubbish at that. And, uh, and he, he looked at me and he smiled and he went, well, maybe just don't call them fuckers. <laughs> so, so. I love that story. And it told us so much about the compassionate side of Hamilton as well. Now, someone who might have used the word fuckers to describe his rivals was 1980 world champion Alan Jones. AJ was one of F1's tough guys. He was a hard man on and off the racetrack, and he still doesn't mince his words to this day. Oh, well, my relationship with most drivers was pretty vague. I never really used to socialise with any of them, and never, I mean, apart from sort of getting on the odd bus to go somewhere with all the other drivers, or maybe if you were staying at a hotel on a, on a, on a test day, like a non-racing weekend, where you might bump into them at breakfast or something. Would you I, sit with them? Uh, no, preferably not. Um, I just wanted to do my own thing. You know, I didn't want to let my guard down in any way. Um, and I used to. Do you regret that in hindsight? No, not at all. Um, I actually, I'd, I'd have breakfast with Jody. I got on okay with Jody. Ronnie was a lovely bloke. I got on all right with him. But the rest of them, really, I couldn't give two shits about. To be honest with you, because they were enemies. Effectively, well, I was just. They were just things that had to be passed. Um, and that was it. <laughs> things. Um, yeah. And I just took the personality out of it completely. Yeah. I didn't say, oh, here comes such and such. I've got to get past him. It was just a thing that was on the circuit that had to be passed at all costs. AJ and I caught up in Melbourne at the season opening Australian Grand Prix. And his Aussieisms had me in stitches from start to finish. As did Daniel Ricciardo, in fact, especially when talking about his relationship with his three-year-old nephew. But they're they're cute and I love them. And uh, what have you taught? You've taught the three-year-old to say something, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> I've taught him some bad words, but like I'm saying, a year ago, and he still says it. And every time he sees me, because he knows it's bad now, he won't even say like, "Hey, hey, Uncle Daniel." Like he'll say what he says and it's bad i hope he stops I, <laughs> but I it's funny to, i can't help but laugh so he keeps are you going to share with the listeners what you've taught your three-year-old <laughs> niece or nephew the, the nep uh, nephew he's right. the older one isaac so i don't even know how it started so i think it was i was home last year for christmas and look i might have had like 
$20 on the table or something like that. There was some cash around and he picked it up and he's like, Oh, my cash. And I was like, no, it's mine. He goes, my cash. And I was like, do you know what that's called? That's called cash money. And I was just trying to like teach him, you know, just being an idiot, you know, like cash money. And he's like, cash money. And then I was like, say cash money, bitches. (laughs) He said (laughs) cash money, bitches. And now all he says is cash money, bitches. I'm like, oh no. But because it's, you can't not laugh. So he sees you laugh, you, he gets a reaction and he says it more. So And what does Sister Michelle make of all this? I mean, I mean, at first, yeah, it was fun and games, but now it's like he's going to go to school soon. Yeah. We're going to stop him saying this. So Good it's funny. It's yeah. funny. But I, uh, he's like, he's, he's me. Like so many things I see already and he's, he's cheeky, but he loves cars, loves bikes. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be trouble. Like, he's legit going to be trouble. (laughs) What a joy it is to talk to that man. He must be such a cool uncle, and he seems to get more colourful and more outrageous with age, and we love him for it. Talking of age, let's hear now from Tony Brooks. He's the second oldest living Formula One race winner who did battle and often beat the greats of the 1950s like Juan Manuel Fangio and Sterling Moss. The respect between the drivers during such a dangerous era was palpable, but it was clear to Tony who the benchmark was. No, there's two names I wanted to ask you about. Um, you've mentioned Sterling, Sterling Moss on separate yes. occasions. Yes. Just how good was Moss? Oh, well, extremely good. Extremely, extremely good. And uh, no question about it. I mean, he was the uh, uh, second best to, um, uh, to, to Fangio, uh, in my opinion. I don't, uh, don't have any doubt about that. You know, and uh, Hawthorne and uh, Collins were very good, and you know, a lot of other very, very good drivers. But uh, um, Sterling just had that, uh, just that little extra uh, amount of aggression, I think, and uh, uh, and his experience enables him to uh, to do very well. But I mean, you know, I mean, talk about the World Championship. I mean, he was second, I think, for, f- for four years, was it? The fifties, you know, and never managed to go up the year. So if I ever got fed up about winning the world show, I think, well, now I know this, know this master. In fact, I think I see Simon made the comment one time. You know, it, it was um, it was almost a, um, an accolade not to have won the world championship. <laughs> and of course, a man who won it many times, five times, was Fangio. So yes, you think he was the best driver you ever raced? Yes, the best driver. You ever raced? I ever raced against him. Yeah. Oh yes, no Andrew. question about that. Yeah, but the thing is, he did in in four different cars. Um, um, uh, yes, three no three different cars. He, he won the championship uh, five times. Was I'm losing track of time? Yeah, five times, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah so well, he won it in four four different cars. So I mean, that says a lot. I mean, some of these uh, people who sort of were in a Mercedes or a, a, a um, what's it, these, uh, these other teams, you know, it's the same car with a superior thing, you know, it doesn't it, but to, to win it five times in, in three different cars, that's saying something. Great versatility, but what made, what stood him apart? What made him so good? I think just uh, uh, an extra amount of natural ability. That um, I think Sterling had to try harder to produce the same sort of uh, performance as uh, Fangio. 
at any particular level. I mean, I can't prove this. Just my um, opinion. But he he just had that extra bit of natural ability, perhaps the extra sensitivity in his terrier, uh, <laughs> in his hands, uh, and uh, certainly, obviously, he's got everything uh, upstairs uh, working very well. Uh, but um, I think just that he was his, God gave him just that extra extra, extra touch of uh, natural ability. And what was your personal relationship like with Fangio? Oh, well, fine. Yes, I we spoke. Uh, you know, we spoke to. In fact, we were invited out to uh, Argentina. I think after he retired and had a very nice uh, uh, few weeks there uh, with him. And uh, yes, I spoke to him in Italian. And um, yes, no, a very good, uh, very good relationship. No problem at all there. From one old time legend to another, let's sign off from this best of 2019 with the 96 year old voice of Formula One, Murray Walker. Many F1 fans grew up listening to Murray's F1 broadcasts and he was beyond the grid's chosen subject when F1 celebrated its 1,000th race at the Chinese Grand Prix earlier this year. Murray has witnessed all 1,000 races and to hear him count down to the start of a race in the closing moments of the podcast left me with goosebumps. Over to you, Murray. So watch the lights. It's five lights, four lights, three lights, two lights, one light. Go, go, go. And I'll go. Murray, thank you very much. What a way to finish. But sadly, folks, that's it. You'll be on the grid. Christmas hamper is now empty. I hope you enjoyed hearing these highlights as much as I did. And if it whetted your appetite, why not delve into the back catalogue yourself and relive some of the best moments from season two? And why stop there? Season one is still available to listen to as well and features some stellar guests. Before we go, I also wanted to say a big thank you for your feedback about last week's episode with Daniel Ricardo. He's very popular with you guys. And Graham Warwick got in touch via Twitter to say this. Finally managed to listen to the latest episode with Daniel Ricardo. Worth the wait. Possibly the nicest, most open and most honest man on the grid. I think we need an update from him every six months. <laughs> well, it's hard to disagree with you, Graham. Dan is indeed great value. Well, that's it for now. Thank you for listening. And don't worry, Beyond the Grid will be back in 2020 and we have some huge plans for the podcast. So watch this space. And a big thank you to everyone who's made the show such a big success. And that, of course, includes all of you wonderful listeners. For now, though, happy holidays and see you in the new year. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. Flat out.